You're listening to Lead, Sell, Grow, the Human Experience Podcast. I am your host, Eric Konovalov, and I believe that we can achieve everything we want if we take our leadership, sales ability, and personal growth to a higher level. On this show, we share ideas on how to break through our invisible boundaries, start taking steps towards our dreams, and create the life we desire. I invite you to open your mind to new possibilities, new ideas, and to the truth that everything you want is possible for you. Thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Lead, Sell, Grow, the Human Experience Podcast. If you're not in my Facebook group yet, get your butt over there. Sign up, join the group. It's all free. I'd love to have our conversation with you. And I want to hear about what you think of my guest today because she's going to be spitting some fire. She's going to give you some valuable tips about selling your business and how we can do it. Her name is Jessica Fialkovich. She's an expert speaker and small business advocate, an award-winning business owner. She's the founder of Exit Factor. She's also the co-owner of Trans World Business with her husband and business partner, Al. She's the author of Getting the Most for Selling Your Business, and she's here to talk to us about selling our business. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric, so much. I'm so glad to be here. Me too. I'm super glad that you're here. You're joining us out of Dallas, Texas. I like Texas. Mm-hmm. So, Jessica, how do you, before you became this guru expert at helping people exit their business, take me back to, I don't know if you went to college, doesn't matter, but either college or after high school, what was Jessica doing back then? Yeah. So, so really funny. I, I never thought I would own my own business. So my grandparents were entrepreneurs and my parents kind of saw that up and down journey. So they did the exact opposite. My dad went into education and my mom's a nurse. And so they hammered home that like, I need to get a good job with a big company and like, you know, stick it out for 40 years and get that good 401k. So that's what I went to college to do. Um, I went to a small college out of central New Jersey called the College of New Jersey. And at that time, I was an athlete. So my passion was sports. Um, So my trajectory was that I was going to go work for major sports organizations, and that was going to be my career. Um, So I started interning with uh, the Philadelphia Eagles and the NFL. And then once I graduated college, I, I moved into working for the Flyers out of Philadelphia for the NHL. But that was what I thought my career was going to be for the next 40 years. And then as we all know, life doesn't exactly turn out how you planned it. So, but that's where I started. What sports did you play? I played field hockey and lacrosse and I was um, an equestrian growing up. So I, I rode dressage, which is a specialized form of English riding. It's kind of like ballet on horses. So it was the, the metaphor I use. Wow. Okay. So what, so just, because you did that, how does that equate to working in the sports world? You weren't going to be an athlete, right? No, I was going to be an athlete. I was going to be on the the management and uh, they call the, the the team officer team ops side. But yeah. I just knew the the area, and I think too because I was in sports, a lot of my connections were through sports. So oh. when I got to college, uh, Pop Warner football was headquartered right by our college campus, and that was the first internship I got. And I was like, well, this is really cool. Like. If I can't play or do some type of Olympic sport, at least I can stay involved in sports. And that was the world I knew, right? I I knew that, you know, how an event runs. I knew, you know, the importance of 
athletes working with like the team ops and things like that. So it was a, it was an easy transition for me. And then it just happened that that was my first internship too. So. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. And then let me guess, you saw the Philly Eagles fans beat up Santa Claus and you said, I'm not doing this anymore. You know what? I mean, like I won't reveal all of it, but uh, yeah, Philadelphia fans are, I will say this. I am no longer a Philadelphia fan of any sport. (laughs) That's, you know, it's, it's not as bad as beating up Santa Claus, but it's not, it's not nearly as uh, nice in some other, like most other cities are nicer. So, but yeah, it's like, it's kind of like, you know, you meet your hero sometimes, or you go, sometimes it's not great to work in your passion. And I've, I've talked to some people about this that want to get into sports. Sometimes when you pull back that curtain, you're not going to like what you see. And that's, that's what happened to me. Now, look, I have some friends that are still in the industry and they're probably listening to this show. And they're like, Oh, Jess, it wasn't that bad. It, it just was not for me. Yeah. Not for everyone. And now knowing that I was destined to become an entrepreneur. I, under, I understand why it was the bureaucracy and all of that. So got it. Okay, cool. So that was, the, you started there. So how did it, where did, where did the transition happen? So the transition happened, actually, I made a, a, a soft jump into commercial real estate uh, when I moved out to Colorado because my now husband was living out there. So I moved out there for him, but we were working in commercial real estate development in 2008, um, 2009. So we kind of know great how times. that's, yeah, great times. I mean, 2000, we started 2007. That was a really fun year. 2008 started to be a, as a good year. Um, and then uh, we were partially funded by Lehman Brothers. So September of 08 was not fun. <laughs> wow. What were you guys doing? Um, my husband worked on the finance side and then I worked in marketing and sales. So there's super fun conversations where he would come home and he'd say, Hey, we're running out of cash. And I'd say, well, Hey, we're also not selling anything, but we're issuing a bunch of refunds and we kind of saw the writing on the wall. So that's scary. It's, it is scary. It it was scary because we were both working for the same company. Um, So our entire household income was tied up into, into that project and we were living in Aspen at the time, which is not an inexpensive place to live. Um, so we we're looking probably, I think we had, when we calculated, we had four to six months to really figure out what we were going to do before we were both going to get laid off. So how was that conversation? So my husband, it was natural. It was like, he's, he's a positive person. And he also, he comes from an entrepreneurial background. His parents were entrepreneurs. He started working in his parents' business when he was 12. And he's like, this is our ticket. Like, this is out. Like, we're going to start our own thing. We're going to control our future. That's, this is really our opportunity. And, you know, I'm freaking out and like, oh, we can't own our own business. Cause the, the stories I had been told is like, you know, it's, it, it, we're going to have all these ups and downs and it's going to be stressful and it's risky. And we both eventually, me so like my myself coming around to the fact that, well, I mean, we just had this job with one of these very large, well-known corporate developers, like one of the biggest developers in the country. And that's supposed to be right secure. Yeah. And here we are both suffering for decisions we had no control over, right? We had no control over any of that stuff. And so over time, and it wasn't a long time, but a few weeks, I began to realize that actually entrepreneurship is a safer road for us at this point. And we does offer us more control over our destiny than, you know, some executive sitting up in a tower in New York, just making budgetary decisions. 
Wow. Wow. Do you know how many people listening right now believe that their job is the secure thing to do just because they've had a paycheck for the last however many months or years? I love that you just said that. Absolutely love it. Okay. So what was the business you guys decided to go into? So we didn't, uh, we didn't think a whole lot through, but we knew we were living in Aspen. So we had to leave Aspen because we needed to live somewhere more, more affordable. And my in-laws owned a place in Naples, Florida, they weren't using at the time. So we did a bunch of research. Like what does the demo look like in Naples? Right. Average age is 96. Yes. Actually, you know what? I think at the time it was 85. So you're not that far off. Like it's pretty, it's real high, right? I live about two, two hours North of Naples. Now we moved here 18 months ago. So sorry for interrupting. Okay. So you guys went to Naples couldn't have been much cheaper than Aspen, but we had a free house. You had a free house. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. That is nice. Yeah, my in-laws were not really using their house. They had, so free house, free car, um, you know, so reduced overhead, right? In Naples. In Naples, like, right? People, snowbirds come down here. This is where they retire and vacation. Yeah. So we started doing some research. We're like, all right, older demographic, what do they do? Well, the answer was they drink all day, right? So that's what they do. They go to lunch, they have wine. They go to dinner parties, they have wine. And we learned that it's one of the uh, largest wine markets, um, specifically for collectors and and luxury wine in the country. And we had a friend back in Aspen that had a very successful luxury wine store. So we just said to him, hey, do you care if we basically rip off your concept and build it in Naples? He's like, no, go for it. I mean, like, we don't, we're not going to have overlap on customers. So we modeled our wine store, which was called Decanted after our friends in Aspen and Dobin. That's what we really focused on was like dealing in the high end luxury market. So our average cost per bottle at the end, before we sold the company is probably about $200 on average. That was your cost or your price? That was our price. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So just focusing on that that luxury market and catering to the snowbirds, the old retirees. And uh, I mean, it, it was a crazy journey that that decision took us in all kinds of different directions, but it was fun at the time. I mean, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall when you came up with that idea. So what, what type of research did you do to figure that out? So we... We knew that the concept worked in Aspen, right? So we knew in an affluent market that it would work. Um, And then we did start doing demographic research based on age, um, because if you're retired, you're obviously going to spend more time doing things leisurely, like like drinking and parties and that that kind of stuff. We also did some demographic research based on um, average household income and kind of discretionary income. And then the last thing we did was we did a research trip down to Naples in um, January of 09. And that was when we realized that what, what was really dominating in the market were these small luxury retailers, not the chains like Total Wine and Publix and everything like that. They were all going to these smaller uh, mom and pops to get their wine. But at that time, we're January 09, right? All of the stores were suffering. So they were going through cash flow issues. They're in the midst of the recession. And so they weren't stocking their shelves a lot. They weren't taking um, what's called allocations in the wine industry. So when you deal in high-end wine, you are offered the opportunity to buy certain wineries, right? And you have to interview with these wineries and you're only offered a certain amount based on different criteria. 
And so they weren't taking their allocations of the, this higher end wine. And we knew that's where the higher margins are. That's where the demand was. So we figured out there would be an opportunity to kind of slide in during a recession and get some of those allocations that maybe we would have had to wait 5, 10, 15 years to have the ability to sell. My goodness. So when everybody else is kind of retracting, you guys are expanding. Yeah. Well, and you hear these stories, right, about how it's beneficial to open a business in a recession or a depression, right? Like I think FedEx and Disney were both founded like in a depression, right? And from my experience, it's completely true because not only did we benefit from those allocation issues, but our landlord was more flexible, right? He's looking at buildings, especially, you know, Florida, when when Florida gets hit, they get hit hard, right? Mm -hmm. So our landlord was sitting on all kinds of empty space, completely flexible with us. Our vendors were same thing. They, you know, we just said their their accounts aren't buying from them, so they're issuing um, longer and longer payment terms and you know deals and things like that. So I mean, like we probably could not have started the same business in this type of environment that we're sitting in 2022 that we did in the midst of one of the worst recessions, hopefully we'll all see in our lifetime. So. God, I love what you're saying. It's so it's possible to believe a lie, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause those, the, the wine stores that were around, they could have just, they could have just taken advantage of the same market, but they, they shrunk instead. Okay, cool. So now you have this wine store you're selling and getting into the high end people. And by the way, I guess if you retire and spend more time with your spouse, you're going to be drinking more. I mean, that's that's just natural. Yeah. I mean, like, what else are you going to do? And, and like, you know, I mean, you live in Florida, you know, that everybody thinks they'll go to the beach and boat every day and all, all that. But like, there's only so much of that you can do. So yeah, it's hard to get stuff done here. I'll, I'll tell you, it's really, really hard to work in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> But yeah, so we got pulled into um, the collectors market. So we started working with collectors, not just in Naples, but all over the US, Canada. Um, we got into trading. Um, there's uh, wine trading in Hong Kong. So we got into that. And so business was growing. And I think the most expensive bottle we sold, we sold at one of the Hong Kong markets for $25,000 for a single bottle of wine. Wow. So, yeah. Have you tried that wine? No, it's too expensive. <laughs> okay. What makes a bottle of wine? Just how long they keep it in the barrel or? No, it's all about, it's about how rare something is, right? So it's, I think everything comes back to supply and demand. So this one winery um, called DRC, they're out of France and um, it's super rare. They just don't make a whole lot, but the demand for it's overwhelming. And so they make different single vineyards and different vintages are better than others. And so there's like a whole collector's market that follows, you know, this wine's the best wine to be ever made or whatever it is. Like it's based on ratings and professional tasters. And so you might have, you know, a ratio of, a, you know, a thousand to one chasing a certain bottle of wine. And there might only be three to five cases of that wine. Around the world. Around the world. Yeah. So just like anything else, supply and demand, limit the supply, increase the demand and, and the price goes up. So, yeah, because I've had, I'd say probably one of the more expensive drinks I've ever had was probably Louis the 13th, you know, cognac. Yeah. And I personally prefer the $50 bottle of Remy Martin VSOP taste wise 
better than that, you know, $3,500, you know, Louis 13th. But anyway, okay. So we're, we're talking a lot about alcohol. I'm about to pull out some tequila and talk to you. <laughs> yeah. How do we get into, did you guys exit out of that or how do you become yeah. an expert at helping companies exit? Yeah. So we're in that business for about three years and uh, most of our marketing channels were online and that's how we got into that world. And um, this guy named Gary Vanerchuk starts doing um, this show called Wine Library. And so everyone in the alcohol industry rushes online and they're all going to sell online, which basically means a rush to the bottom with profit margins, right? So we saw that writing on the wall. We also, I mean, we were super burnout. I mean, we we're running a retail store in Naples, retail store hours, plus working with collectors all across the world in different time zones. And so we knew it was time to leave. Um, we were also uh, a little sick of the the older demographic in Naples. Like we wanted to have friends our age. I love our, our friends that we made in Naples and we're still close with them today, but a lot of them are our parents' age, right? So we decided to sell the business and we went to all of our advisors in um, Naples. We actually went up to Tampa too, to find some people that would help us sell. And everyone told us, you're too small. No one will ever buy you. And at this point, we're running about a three to $4 million annual revenue business. So we're small, but we're still in the top, you know, two to 3% of all businesses in the U.S. And so we, we finally found somebody that was able to successfully sell the business, but it wasn't a great process to go through. I'd say we were treated poorly uh, in, in, in the nicest respect. And the realization coming out of that is that there is thousands upon thousands of business owners in our position every single year. And there's very few resources for them to be able to have a smooth and positive exit experience. And that's when we decided our next our next entrepreneurial venture was going to be in business brokerage and M&A for small businesses. So you had no idea what you were going to do when you decided to sell the, the wine store? The wine no. Business. No, we had no idea. We were, just, I, we, we were so burnt out that we didn't know we were going to take a year off. Um, so we took a year off with our dog. We did this massive road trip and everything. So we knew we were going to carve that space out to figure out what was next for us. And we knew we were um, going back to Colorado. So with those two things figured out, but nothing else. That's it. Okay. Yeah. I love this even more and more. All right. So now you're on your way back to Colorado. You guys figured out, hey, that process sucked. We can do it way better. How did you start marketing your services or what did you do next? So it also opened us up as like, hey, we don't have to start this from scratch. Like we could buy a business just like we sold ours. Somebody bought ours. So we started searching for businesses to buy. And um, fortunately, there was a business brokerage office that was up for resale. Um, and it was through the Transworld Business Advisors Network, which is a franchise that we're now part of. But it was kind of like one of those fortuitous things that, hey, we should do business brokerage. Maybe we don't want to start it on our own. Let's buy something. And then all of a sudden, something was listed for sale in the market that we were living in. So uh, we we took that as kind of fate, handing us something. And we purchased that business and then started growing that um, over. We've been in it for now for 10 years. So do you believe in like the law of attraction? Totally. Yes. Yeah. I'm just seeing this kind of unfold for you. And it's easy to see, you know, looking backwards, but God, yeah, we'll sell this. Oh, I mean, it's just an incredible story. Okay. Yeah. And it it takes time, right? So it takes time. And that that whole 
thing happened over a year period, right? But condensed it now. So kudos. But knowing what you know now, would you have gotten into the same exact kind of franchise model or would you have created something on your own? No, I would have done it the exact same way. Right. So specifically like in our industry and I think in other industries, there is a trend where bigger is not better, but you need the resources of bigger, right? So where we're at today in terms of size and deal flow and how much we're doing, it's taken me 10 years to build this. If I had done it on my own, I think at the time would at least have been double, um, if not more than that. So between the resources um, that we've gotten from the franchise operation, the mentorship, all that stuff, we were really able to jump in and within you know two years, do what some of our competitors were still working on, being able to accomplish 10 or 15 years into their career. Wow. And how are you compared to others in the same franchise business? So we've been the number one uh, franchise office worldwide for the last seven years. Why? Well, one, I do think, look, there's a choice to make as becoming, when you become a franchise, you can become um, what I'd say is closer to a lifestyle business where you're operating just one single location or territory as they call them franchising, or you can go big, right? So we're a multi-unit large franchisee at this point. I think in total, we probably own over 30 territory rights. Um, So that that's one reason we're, we're big, right? We have we have offices in three states. Like we're just big. We've got a lot of employees and stuff. And that is partly a choice, right? I know I have a lot of colleagues that probably have a lot less stressful days than my husband and I do with a staff of 40 and they've just got themselves an assistant, right? So there's that. There's also like, we've really been strategic in in building a business rather than a brokerage office. Um, And you see this in in any industry, but there's a choice to be a practitioner or there's a choice to be an owner and a CEO. And we've really been focused in that owner CEO role and developing a business that's successful, whether my husband and I are there or not, right? It's not dependent on us. And I think that's, that's played a lot into our success in the system as well. So tell me about some of the failures you had in the in the beginning, because I'm sure you didn't come in there like, yeah, we're going to have 30 different territory, um, you know, rights and all that fun stuff. I want to know the the first year where you guys sucked. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. This is the first two years, actually. Um, so there's so many good stories. Uh, so the first year, I think our biggest mistake was that and we're at with like 29 at this point, right? So we're the youngest in the industry by far. And we come in with a little bit of ego. We just come off selling our own business, you know, for a healthy sum. And we're like, we, we can do this better than everyone. Like, why should we learn from anyone? We're going to recreate not just this whole franchise system, but this whole industry ourselves, right? And that was really our first 18 months of business is just why learn from others and let's just kind of do it all on our own which was stupid looking back at it because like we bought into a franchise for a reason. We have these mentors for a reason and people were trying to help us, but we weren't listening to them. Um, So we had a lot of fits and starts that that first 18 months where we could not get it off the ground. We really couldn't get consistent revenue, consistent deal flow, anything like that. And about 18 months in, 
we took a step back and we're like, wait a second, like we're doing this totally wrong. This is not working. Let's scrap everything. And let's just go back to the basics. Let's go back to what training taught us. Let's just, let's just do everything they say and see what happens. And we're, and we committed, we were going to do that for two years. So we're going to just follow a system, follow industry standards for two years, see what happens. And then our promise to ourselves, we can tweak it after that. We can tweak it out after we understand it. That's so good. So if you had to pinpoint, what were some of the things you guys started doing differently once you got on the model versus how you thought you should run it? One is the marketing tactics. So I come back, uh, I come from like a very digital online background. That was what I went to college for. And so um, a, a lot of the marketing methods and prospecting methods that we still use to this day is very grassroots, guerrilla um, and I was like, oh, well, this is so antiquated. Like we should be advertising on Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Well, Let's get click funnels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if you think about like the, the demographic we deal with and still mainly, um, today in our business, we're de- dealing with a baby boomer demographic and, um, especially eight, 10 years ago, like they were not on Facebook, like they don't know how to use a click funnel. Right. So, um, that was a, a big thing is that, you know, the lessons I was learning was meet your market where they were at. And I was trying to force my market to go somewhere I was comfortable in. Um, so that was a really big one. What a huge lesson. Wow. Okay. Wow. So, okay. So what were the grassroots tactics that they're using? Is it straight cold calling? Yeah. Cold calling, knock on doors, um, really, you know, try and try and get people to talk to you, whether it's over the phone or face to face which was out of my comfort zone. My husband and I had never been in direct sales before. So that was really something we had to learn and get um, comfortable being uncomfortable with. And I mean, still to this day, I'm not going to be comfortable making a cold call, but it works in our business. So just have to be uncomfortable with that. Wow. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Okay. So how did, what's the journey from that to number one? Yeah. So that, that was the pivot point. Um, we also went through, we got rid of our entire staff um, pretty much at that point. Uh, we had hired wrong, just put the wrong people in place. And um, so we we started hiring the right people, um, getting the right people on our team. And then it was just really working a systematic process to grow the business. So we also got involved at that time um, in a business mastermind through uh, Entrepreneurs Organization or EO. Uh, we started implementing things like EOS traction. We're on scaling up now, hiring a coach to help us um, develop that process. And so it was just little by little, I think, to, so we opened in 2013. I think 2016 was our first year as number one, um, and then just have built it from there. And that's actually, we didn't really start to add multiple territories and multiple offices. I think 2018 was the first year we expanded outside of the Denver metro area. So it took time into Texas uh, to actually to Western Colorado. And then Texas was in 2020. Gotcha. Okay. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Huge. That is really big success. Okay. And then what prompted you? Well, let me ask you this mergers and acquisitions. That sounds so legal to me. Yeah. Like, so are you, did you have to have attorneys on site or like, what is your staff consistent? Yeah, no, we, so we don't operate in the legal side. Um, So when you go through a sale, which is the industry is called mergers and acquisitions, but when you go through a business sale, you usually have a business broker or an investment banker on your team, which is the role we play. Um, You typically have an M&A, 
legal attorney, um, which we outsource and we have multiple partners that we work with um, that we bring into deals. And then you can have other players on the team too. You could have your CPA involved, your financial planner involved, um, but your business broker, your investment banker really quarterback the deal to get it done. And they bring in partners um, to help handle things like the legal aspects as, as needed. Okay. Can somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of cash buy a business? Totally. So yeah, there's so many options now. Um, I think the best option for most business buyers, especially for small to mid-sized businesses, so up to like $5 million in purchase price, you can use um, small business administration-backed loans to um, purchase those businesses. And by using SBA-backed loans, you're able to put down, right now it's probably about 20 to 30% down on buying a business. And a, a lender that's partnered with the SBA will finance the rest of that purchase. So we've seen it as low in the past as 10% down. Right now, I'd say the average is probably 20 to 30%. But that means, I mean, look, the average sale price of a business, I think last quarter was just about $300,000. So Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, for a hundred grand, you can buy a business and have the rest financed. Yes. And what yeah. type of finance terms happen on a business? Is it like a thirty-year mortgage? Uh, no, it's more in the realm of like five to ten years. So it's a five to ten-year amortization. You can get longer terms if you're buying a building with the purchase um, too. But then you have to have you have to buy the commercial real estate too. But seven to ten years, they're still pretty good term um, loans, and you know. You get the cash flow back a lot faster than what the payments are. So, it's this is such a whole new space to me. I literally, so I have a coaching practice, right? Yeah, I'm the I'm the business. Yeah, my wife just joined me not too long ago, and she does amazing things in corporate training. We do disc, we do leadership, all that fun stuff. But our goal is to be able to create something that when our youngest kid, who's nine right now, is out of the house at 18, military, college, I don't know, wherever the hell he wants to go. Right. We're living in Europe half the year and business is on autopilot. Right. And so just like three weeks ago, I was having a conversation with someone. They're like, whether you're going to sell it or not, you have to make your business sellable today. Yes. So if I'm just going to, you know, take your time because I have your attention right now. Okay. Yeah coaching, if you don't mind, but a lot of the people listening will benefit from this. What are the things buyers look for that I should start thinking about now to make my business sellable? Yeah. So it is a great question. I totally agree with whoever you talked about um, telling you to run your business like it's sellable today, because buyers focus really on two main things when buying a business. They focus on quantity and quality. So they focus on quantity of earnings. So they're focused on the profit of the business. How much money does the business make? Not revenue, but how much does it profit at the end of the year? They're focused on that. So maximizing profit, again, not revenue, right? But maximizing profit in your business Mm -hmm. is one of the things that you need to do in order to make it attractive to buyers. And why that's beneficial today is because like, obviously, if you're focusing on profit, you're putting more cash in your pocket today, right? You're just much more aware of how you're running the business, how the expenses are impacting the business, things like that. And the second thing is the buyers are focused on quality of the business. How well is the business run? There's a lot that goes into that. Um, There's a couple key pieces. One is, you know, tie back to the financials is like, 
How well are the financials kept? You know, are they kept up to date? And that's important because it makes the business sellable, but it also qualifies you for financing, growth capital, that kind of stuff. Um, and then how dependent on the owner is the business? So you say, uh, you know, it running on its own, right? Well, buyers are hyper-focused of businesses that are owner-dependent, they're, they're riskier, right? Because then that buyer has to step into a business owner's shoes, take over. And if the customers are in the employees only like Eric, and then Jess steps in, they don't like Jess, the business fails, right? But it's the same thing. It's like, what if something happens to us? Or what if we want to take a three-week vacation and don't want to check our phone? right? Are, are people still going to do business with our company or are they just doing business with the owners ourselves? Yeah. So making it less reliant and less dependent mm. on the owners um, overall. And then there's a lot other um, aspects too that they focus on, but th- those are the two big ones and, and the quality side. So it's pairing quantity. Like there is a, there is a component like you know, bigger is not better, but it, it is worth more um, at some points. And then, you know, how well does a business run as a business, not as a solopreneur practice? Gotcha. Okay. So I'm on the right kind of mindset track now within the last few weeks. What's your, what's your like most favorite success story? Mm, that's a good one. So as part of um, Exit Factor, which we branched off from Transworld a few years ago, uh, we started working with one of our first clients and they they were in the medical device world. So it was a husband and wife team that came to us and, and we, we work with a lot of husband and wife teams, a lot of family owned businesses. That's like kind of our bread and butter. It's what I know, what the world I live in. So there's a whole other dynamic, right? To those types of businesses versus like venture backed companies. Mm-hmm. So husband and wife team came to us. Business was completely dependent on them. Um, they were doing almost every aspect in the business. Now they had a team, but everything still went through them. They still had to sign off on every decision. Every customer wanted to touch base with them, things like that. And then they also had what we call a customer concentration issue where their revenue was highly dependent on one core customer. And I think that's counterintuitive because some sometimes you hear in growth coaching and building a business that it will be great to land that one big account. It'll be great to land that elephant. If you have 15 other elephants, yes. 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 It can't be your only elephant. No, it makes your business highly susceptible. And so that was affecting them in a lot of different aspects. Um, you know, it affected their margins because they didn't have a lot of negotiation room. So they they had come to us and they said, you know what? We think our employees are going to buy this business two, three years from now from us. And so we dug in, we found those kind of key aspects that we worked on with them to get them out of the day-to-day, make their employees buy into the, not buy into the company more, but you know, buy into the ownership decisions and have decision-making ca- capacity, um, worked on diversifying their customer base. And about 18 months in, they said, okay, like we're, we're ready to go. Let's, let's sell, let's approach the employees. And we said, all right, hold on. Your number one employee is making just about $125,000 a year. This company is now valued at almost $2 million. He, he can't afford to buy it. And then everybody else below him, same thing. So you have to make a decision. And we talk to our uh, clients a lot about this. You have to make a decision. Do you prioritize the legacy of the company and your employees over you receiving more money now for the sale. Because a lot of times when we transition to employees, we have to do things like seller financing or stay on longer. Well, 
Um, this couple was re- re- retirement age and they did not want to do that. And, and to be honest, most employees don't want to buy a business. They're in an employee seat for a reason and not the owner seat. So found them a third party buyer um, through a brokerage services, and they were able to exit within a couple months of listing it for sale. And they received 87% more in value than they would have gotten just 18 months before that. That's amazing. Congratulations. That is a huge, huge win. How do you get paid on that? So through Exit Factor, we charge just a flat fee, annual consulting fee um, to do that. There's no percentage on the upside, and and we keep it pretty low um, and affordable. Um, Once they move to the business brokerage side and they did hire hire a business broker for for that transaction, it's a commission structure. So paid upon success only when and if the business sells. So you guys employ brokers, and that's what Transworld does. Yeah. But Exit Factor... That is just your consulting company that you and Al can come in and guide people to a sale. What a brilliant idea. Yeah. You're coming in like a year early. You're working with these people and you're getting them close to what you know your broker can get the business to sell. And then you're handing it over and now you're getting commission on that end. But it's so great because the client is really set up for success. It's like a win-win-win. When they sell, they can sell fast. You've helped them establish it. I think that's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we really saw, because we saw so many um, businesses that aren't able to sell. So, you know, what the one thing I've learned that that changed my my perspective on selling businesses is most people don't sell because they want to. They sell because they have to. Mm. They're going through things like burnout, family dynamic changes. Um, sometimes they have different opportunities in front of them. They realize they're not an entrepreneur. I mean, or on the worst case scenarios, like illness, death, things like that. That's 95% of why people sell. Hmm. And what ends up happening is if they haven't done some really simple things in how they structure their business leading up to the sale, whether that be a year, five years, or seven years in advance. I mean, obviously we recommend doing it from the very beginning. If they haven't done that, what it is, is it's a fire sale. It's what can we get for this? And oftentimes those businesses don't sell at all. Um, They end up closing the doors and the owners just have to walk away. That's sad to see. Yeah. So where do you see the... um the next three years going with our state of economy, are you seeing a lot more businesses selling, holding out? So a lot of, it's a great question. A lot of businesses are moving to sell. Um, We're going through what we've termed the seller tsunami. So more than half of all small businesses in the U.S. are owned by the baby boomer generation. So you hear a lot about financial planners talking about this great wealth transfer, but there's also going to be this great entrepreneurial transfer. And for a while, we were quite concerned about that because the millennial generation who's going to have to be like the buyers mainly, like Gen X will buy some of them, but we need a large generation like the millennials to take over from the baby boomers. Um, They weren't as inclined to be as entrepreneurial as their parents and grandparents. And the pandemic changed a lot of that. So now you have a lot of the millennial generation that wants to control their future, control their schedule, do what they want to do. And this great resignation that they're calling it has really helped um, solve that gap. So now you've got a lot of um, businesses coming to market to sell, but you have about three times the amount of buyers that we did in 2019. So you guys are busy. 
yeah, we're very, very busy. <laughs> so in a good way, right? Yeah. Good so, for you. yeah. So I think the next three years that's going to continue. Selling a small business is, is a little bit more insulated in terms of market conditions than selling a residential property or a commercial property, mainly just because it's not as large of a market. You know, there's not millions of businesses that sell every year. There's thousands. So if you go back to that supply demand conversation, you know, there's only a few thousand businesses that are selling and there's millions of buyers. So really, yeah, that's good. Okay. Tell us about your book. So getting the most for selling your business was kind of my passion project. Like we were talking in the green room. I just want people to understand that they really do have to prepare in advance. And like, I'd say like, if you haven't done it from day one of starting your business, like the next best day is today. And it's not as overly complex as you would think. There's just a a mindset shift and some simple things that you can do to run your business differently to ensure it's valuable and desirable for sale if you have to sell or you choose to sell in the future. So that's my little guidebook uh, that I've been working on for quite a while. We just released it in April, kept it very short and sweet because I know business owners don't have a lot of time. Um, So I think it's less than 150 pages. So So this is if, you know, somebody can't get access to you for some reason, this book is pretty pretty much going to tell them a summary of what you would have told them if you were sitting in front, in front of them at a, at a coffee shop. Yeah. Yes. This is the answer of like, you know, what should I do to prepare my business for sale? Can I take you to lunch? Like it's, that's the book. So that's awesome. What a great resource. I, um, so I got two little boys, little guy, he's entrepreneurial spirit, nine years old. My older one's 13. And two weeks ago he came to me and I taught him I remember like maybe a year and a half ago, he was asking my wife for some candy. He's got a sweet tooth, you know? Yeah. And uh, the way he was asking was just yes or no questions. Can I have candy? No, not until you have dinner, right? Just setting himself up for failure, right? But he was eight. Yeah. So I told him, I said, buddy, you know, if you want mommy to give you candy, here's how you got to ask. Mommy, should I have candy now or after dinner? Yeah. And so I don't know, that sunk in. So he came into my my office like two weeks ago. He says, Daddy, I want to start a business. Do you want to give me money to start a business or do you want to be my partner? <laughs> That's That was the sales pitch. Oh my God, I love it. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> so I said, all right, well, what's the business? He said, I want to sell cotton candy and the money I make, we're going to give to homeless people and veterans. I said, all right, put it there, partner. We shook hands. Now we're business partners. Mm -hmm. So that's how Candy for a Cause was born. I now have a cotton candy machine. In the last like freaking two weeks, I think we've sold $1,700 worth of cotton candy. That's amazing. 25% of top line revenue is getting donated. So I got So what I just showed you is like thank you cards that he signs when we're shipping them to people all over the place. I did not expect to be in the cotton candy business like three <laughs> weeks ago, I swear. You never know where, where life takes you, right? <laughs> you never, ever know. So now we're getting business cards. Like it's, it's, it's a legit business. Yeah. He's getting paid like <laughs> for a nine-year-old. It's pretty cool. That's amazing. I love it. Thank you. So Jessica, is there anything that I should have asked you that I did not ask you? No, I think we covered a lot of it today. I just hope this is valuable for your listeners and yeah, get hope they got some some good nuggets out of it. If I'm you guys and you're probably listening in the car, I'm I'm positive that somebody's like, ask her this question. 
So if somebody did that and I was not as good of an interviewer as I should have been and did not ask you the question that John in his car right now wishes I asked you, how can people reach out to you and ask you that question? Yeah. The easiest thing is if you go to exitfactor.com backslash podcast, um, it has links to all my social accounts on there. And it also has a form where you can send me an email too. Um, and there's also the link to the book and all that stuff. So that is awesome. So pick up the book. We'll have all the links in the show notes. So as you're scrolling down, you see those empty stars, fill it up with the five stars, leave a review, buy Jessica's book, shoot her an email. And we really appreciate you for being here and being so open and candid and uh, authentic. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you, Eric. It was great being here. Bye-bye. You've listened to another episode of Lead, Sell, Grow, the Human Experience Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave us a nice review. And if you're not a part of our tribe on Facebook, be sure to head over to Facebook and join Lead, Sell, Grow, the Human Experience Tribe. I look forward to speaking with you in the tribe. Have a great day.